invite you all to stay in the place of prayer, your heads bowed, and listen in to Hannah's prayer as we begin tonight. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He set the world on them. He keeps the feet of His godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and He will give strength to His King and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Amen. Amen. Someone will turn on the lights. Let's open up to 1 Samuel chapter 2 tonight. We began last week, and the book of 1 Samuel begins with the cry of a barren woman, but chapter 2 takes off with the song of a blessed woman. Same woman, Hannah. Hannah, whose name means grace or favor, found both grace and favor in the eyes of the Lord as the Lord remembered her. Year after year, she went up to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. You remember this week, we looked at it last week. Year after year, she was taunted and mocked by the other wife of her husband, Elkanah. Year after year, her prayers seemingly went unanswered. Year after year, she said, Lord, please give me a son for my husband. Lord, please open my womb that I can bear a child. Lord, please, this is all I ask. Year after year after year. But finally, God answered Hannah's prayer. When was that? He answered her prayer when she became aligned with his purpose. Hannah's prayer was too small. As is often the case with our prayers, they're just too small. We pray at this level, God is offering this level. We pray with small-mindedness, just thinking, God, can you get me through the day when He wants to bring us eternal life? We say, Lord, I just, I just need you to cover this bill when, when the Father is saying, you have no idea how much I want to pour out onto you so that you can be generous yourself. Our prayers are too small. Hannah wanted a son to give her husband. God wanted a prophet to send to the nation. And so when Hannah finally clued in to God's purpose, when she finally was able to say, Lord, give me a son that I can give to you, for the Lord answered the prayer. 
And the result of that prayer is the wonderful prophet Samuel. You see, God says in Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. When? When you understand the plans that I have for you. We don't have to know exactly what those plans are. But to know that he's got plans that, that we can't even imagine. I, I, was, I was just praying this today. I had to drive over and pick up Hannah and Anacortes. And I'm driving across the bridge. And, and, I, and I think a lot about the bridge, Christian Fellowship. And I was thinking about where we're at and what God has accomplished and, and what he's done so far. And, and I, it, the thought just struck me. Father, we've been praying too small. Have we been too content in our little barn? Is there more that you want to do here? And occasionally we'll talk about that, you know, and you know, between us and fellowship. Sometimes from up here I'll say, I, I don't think God's finished yet, but are we praying too small? Is it not possible for God to give us Whidbey Island? Oh, not for us. But is it not possible for the Lord to ignite the name of Jesus in this location to the point where people are just coming to Him in droves? Is that not possible? And we, we fear to ask and pray those things because we think, oh, what if we start praying it and it doesn't come to be? What if we just start praying it and we never really get any further than we are right now? Well, then that's God's plan. He knows what He's doing. But I think we pray too small. Hannah learned this. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. Now, I fully believe this. God gives us free will. We can choose to go whatever direction we want. And as Christians, we can have that free will and we can say, Lord, I want to move here. Lord, I want to do this. Or Lord, I'd like to, to head this direction. And I believe the Lord will say, Okay, I can bless that. But how much better for us to say, Lord, I abdicate my free will to you. I don't want to make the choices. I don't even want to be in the front seat. I want to be in the little jumper seat in the back. That was where I grew up. We had the Vista Cruiser station wagon with the fold-down seat, you know, that wouldn't even be legal today. And we sit there in the back, looking out the back as life is going by this way, just going, wow, wow, look at that, wow. And that's where I want to sit with the Lord. Father, you drive. And you take us where you want to go. And you do whatever you want to do. And it doesn't matter what that is. Because I know if you're driving, it's going to be great. I don't even want to be in the front seat because I'll have a tendency to tell him where to turn. I don't have to have my hands on the wheel to say, uh, Lord, you know, that looks pretty good over there. And he'll say, you want to go that way? Because I was thinking about heading up this mountain here. Yeah, but there's a nice field over there. Okay? And off we go. So I want to abdicate my will to the Father, commit my way to the Lord, trust in Him, because He will do it. Now, last week, I encouraged you to read through Hannah's song. I don't know if you had a chance to do that. But in this second chapter, the first ten verses are the song of Hannah, and it's wonderful. The, the flip here between these first two chapters. The prayer of a barren woman, the praise of a blessed woman. Same woman who God has touched and changed. Now, if you've read through this, you may have recognized the contrast here. Contrast of what I would call the divine and the dirt. Because in this prayer of Hannah, there is both heavenly expression and heartfelt earthiness. There's just a real human aspect to this prayer, but there's a divine heavenly aspect as well. Consider both of those for a moment. First off, think about the heavenly side of Hannah's prayer. 
Because if you read through this and just listen to her wording, it is very similar to another prayer by another woman. You may know it called the Magnificat. It's the prayer prayed by Mary. It's Mary's song. Listen as I read it to you for a moment. It's in the book of Luke, chapter 1. Where Mary recognizes, believes that she is going to give birth to a child, though she is a virgin... Though it's impossible with man, all things are possible with God. And it says that Mary said, verse 46, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. Sound like Hannah's prayer? She says he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now you might say, well that's interesting. Hannah prays a prayer, Mary prays a prayer, so they have a couple of different women praying. So it's interesting to point that out, but but why point it out? I think Mary must have been familiar with Hannah's prayer. I think Mary must have known it. She may have been young, maybe 14, 15 years old. We don't really know how old Mary was. She may even have been illiterate. It would have been typical to be illiterate in, in the Galilee, living up there where she did. But Mary knows the Word. The Word is in Mary's heart as she begins to proclaim this prayer. You don't pray a prayer like that unless you've heard the Word. Unless the Word has gotten into you. And Mary has heard the Word. Maybe at home from her parents, her father, her mother. I don't know. Maybe she soaked it up in synagogue. But as Mary prays, we hear Hannah's prayer. Now for time's sake, I'm not going to do this tonight. But I encourage you, new assignment for this next week... Go home and read Hannah's prayer and read Mary's prayer and compare the two. Look at them. Look at the similarities. Listen to what these two women are saying because there is a heavenly side to both of these prayers. But back with Hannah's prayer, there's also a very earthy side. I like the way Hannah prays because there are several statements against her enemy, Penina. Penina is never named. Remember, Penina is the other wife. She's the wife who's had the children. She's the wife who taunted and mocked Hannah every year as they went to, uh, up to Shiloh to the tabernacle. She's the one who made fun of her and made her life miserable. She was the enemy. The woman who had many children against Hannah who had none. Penina is the enemy, the rival. Though she's not named, she is definitely implicated in this prayer. And some of this prayer is a little rough. It's a little accusatory. But that's what I love about it. Hannah's prayer is is not to impress anybody. She was not praying this prayer thinking someday this is going to be written down in the first book of Samuel chapter 2. And people are going to study it. I mean, how would you feel if one of your prayers was just plucked out of your life and put into the Word of God? If you knew ahead of time, wouldn't that change the way you prayed? Oh Lord, Thou art great! Mine eyes are upon thy humble servant. Of course it would shade how we pray, but Hannah had no idea that this was going to be recorded. 
and read over and over for thousands of years, not a clue. She's just praying. Her heart is on her sleeve. She's not trying to impress anybody, even the Lord. She's just praying what she knows, what she feels. And this is absolutely key to prayer. Keep it real. Don't get caught up in in the wordiness of it. I shared with a few of you a while ago that there was a, a kid who came to youth group one day when I was a youth pastor years ago and he had a shirt and I love the shirt it's another great t-shirt idea for you the shirt said pray naked wouldn't that be great for a pastor to wear on a Sunday morning and someone visits and they see him go oh it's one of those churches pray naked talking about transparency and realness in prayer not trying to be lofty You see, God is lofty. God is lifted up. We're just human. And so if we pray as such, if we're humble when we come before the Lord and we don't try to dress it up and make it more than it is, He just wants us to come to Him. I recall also, a while back, many of you remember that uh, we had a visit from a, from a guy from the Baha'i faith, and he was really intent on getting an audience at the bridge. He wanted to talk to the bridge. And the first time he came, he handed me this, this, this uh, little booklet of Baha'i prayers. And he asked me to, to read through them. And I looked at a couple of them. And as I, he was standing there, I'm looking at him, and he said, Don't those just sound spiritual? Don't those just sound like truth? Don't they just have a ring of, 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 of spiritual things? And they did. There were a lot of these and vows and, you know, yees. But Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 5, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Hannah's praying at the tabernacle. She has no idea she's being seen by men. She is just pouring out her heart to the Lord. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, people who pray like that, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go to your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Check that. The Gentiles, the pagans, the heathens, believe they're going to be heard for their many lofty words. Pages and pages of of prayers written down. They're supposed to sound spiritual and supposed to gain you audience to God because I'm going to be heard because I've said all the right things. And among us, sometimes we don't pray because we don't know what to say or we're afraid we're going to sound stupid, especially in front of other people. We don't want to say, Lord, um... It's just been a stinky day. You know, we, we don't want to say, because then we'll be thinking, people are, oh, they heard me say stinky, and that's not a prayer word. <laughs> and Hannah just doesn't seem to care. She has learned something about her father, that he is not looking for people to impress him. By the way, you can't impress him with your righteousness. You can impress him when you come to him as a humble child he delights in that he's looking for Hannah's he's looking for graced people who keep it real and how Hannah's prayer lacks all this pretense and yet and it's amazing God allows her prayer to be in his most holy word 
divine, heavenly, wonderful in some of its language, and yet very human in other parts, Hannah's prayer. And we're going to see as we get into these. I mentioned one of the three things that really stands out in the books of First and Second Samuel are prayers. And we will learn something of prayer. We already have, we've already seen something of prayer, but this is another thing to understand, is just keep it real. It's so encouraging to read a prayer like Hannah's because it reminds me that God understands His kids and He knows where we're coming from. Go back and look at verse 1 again. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, literally my strength, it's not that she had a horn coming out of her head, my strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. In other words, I'm lifted up and my enemies are shut up. My mouth is enlarged. I have something now that I can say. I have something of, of worth and value. What's that, Hannah? That I prayed nine months ago. And today I have a child. And it's to the praise and glory of God. My mouth is enlarged with the praises that are on my lips. She says, because I rejoice in your salvation. Verse 2, there's no one holy like the Lord indeed. There is no one besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Now suddenly in verse 3, she's praying still, but she's not talking to the Lord. Now she's starting to talk against her rival. Here's where we get a little earthy. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed, Penina. God's been watching all these years. He knows what you've been doing. He's heard the taunts. In essence, this is what Hannah is saying. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. And even the barren gives birth to seven. But she who has many children languishes. This is interesting to me. Hannah is very nearly prophetic here. She's born a child at this point, Samuel. And as we'll see in verse 21, the Lord will go on to give her three more sons and two more daughters. So do the math. Samuel, three sons, two daughters. Six. Hannah has six children, but in her prayer she says, even the barren gives birth to seven. The point is, seven is the number of completion. The Lord has completed me, Hannah said. He has filled me with every desire. He's gone beyond. I just wanted one son for my husband. He raised up a prophet for the nation and gave me five children to keep me happy at home. I am full. I am complete. I am satisfied. And it's the context of verse 5 that the hungry are made full. We were talking at worship rehearsal just the other night. And uh, we kind of put Natalie on the spot, which I'm going to do right now. And we were talking to her just about her coming to the Lord and, and her background and, and, and why she came to the bridge and kind of what she was looking at. And, and she said one thing and it just it really kind of struck me. She didn't know she was being recorded for tonight either. It struck me. She just said, I was so hungry. And she said, and I just... In fact, we asked her, why did you come to worship rehearsal? Because she wasn't invited. Um, no, I'm kidding. She was. We said, why did you come to rehearsal? And she said, I just, I just can't get enough. We, we finished rehearsal and we played an extra song. And now he's over here and she goes, can we do one more? Can we just do one more? You know, we do one more song. And, do one more? <laughs> 
And her, her, whole, her whole countenance, her, her expression, and what she was saying is, I, I, was, I was so hungry, and now I'm just getting so filled. Yeah. And isn't it wonderful to be hungry and to bring that emptiness to the Lord and be filled? And this is what he does. And it's even for some of you, right now it's what he's doing. He's filling us up. When we come in hungry, we come in wasted, we come in tired, in the middle of a week that, that may be tough for you, and we get filled. Because Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. The barren woman, woman will have seven children. Complete satisfaction. And I'm reminded that John writes in John 1.16 Of His fullness we have all received And grace upon grace His fullness That's, that's mind boggling The fullness of Jesus It's out of that that we receive our filling No wonder we get filled Because there is an endless supply With Jesus He fills us up again and again and again. And Hannah recognizes this. Verse 6, she continues praying, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. How does she know that? No one's been resurrected yet. But she's praying in the Spirit here. She is praying in the Lord and she is talking about, she is prophesying, she is talking about things to come. The Lord does kill. He takes down the shield, but he, he raises up again. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And He set the world on them. And he keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. And now she's going into prophecy again. The Lord will exalt the horn. Anytime you see the horn, by the way, and you'll see it a lot in the Psalms, and in prayers in the scripture, the horn of Israel, the horn of his people, the horn of his anointed is talking about the strength. It's a picture, it's a symbol of strength. And so, the Lord will exalt the horn, the strength of his anointed. And the prophetic implications of this word anointed are important to know. We've, we've kind of touched on this, and it's interesting to me. I just saw this today, kind of added it into my notes at the last minute. We've been talking about being anointed quite a bit lately. Spent most of our shepherds meeting last night talking about being anointed. I kept Tom up until 11 o'clock last night talking about being anointed and what this truly means. It indicates, first of all, this idea of anointed indicates God's chosen vessels. God's chosen vessels. Exodus chapter 30 goes into detail as God tells Moses what needs to be anointed. You need to anoint the tabernacle. And so Moses would do that. He would anoint the tabernacle with a specific kind of oil that, that he is told how to make and put together. He's to anoint the implements of the tabernacle. All of those vessels that will be used in the service of the tabernacle are anointed. Because the anointed or to anoint indicates God's chosen vessels, including the Ark of the Covenant, that was to be anointed. But God didn't stop there. He said, then, then I want you to anoint the priests. My chosen priest, Leviticus chapter 8, describes that anointing, the first anointing of Aaron and his sons, as Moses follows the commands of the Lord. The anointed vessels, the anointed priests, and it also, and we're going to see now, begins to indicate God's chosen kings. For every king in Israel is going to be anointed. 
Samuel, Hannah's son, is going to, as he gets older and becomes that great prophet, will anoint the first king of Israel, Saul. He will anoint the second king of Israel, David. By the way, while the first king of Israel is still on the throne, and that's an interesting story. God's chosen kings are often called God's anointed. In fact, David, after he had been anointed, but knew that Saul was still sitting as God's anointed on the throne, referred to Saul as God's anointed. Even when Saul was trying to kill David, David would would say, it's not for me to come against God's anointed. That word anointed keeps coming up. And it will ultimately be the designation of the coming Savior. For you see, the word anointed in Hebrew is Mashach. The word anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach, Messiah. And so even as Hannah says, he will exalt the horn of his anointed, she's saying he will exalt the horn of his Messiah. That's the word that's used there, Mashiach. Hannah doesn't know about Messiah. She doesn't understand these things yet. But she is prophesying, she is indicating that the Lord who has brought me out of the dust, the Lord who has given me a child, the Lord who has filled me up, is going to exalt Mashiach, Messiah. Now, the Greek equivalent word in the New Testament is, you probably know, what? What is the Greek equivalent word for the anointed one in the New Testament? Anybody know? It's an easy one. Christos. Jesus Christ. The word Christ is anointed one in the Greek language. The apostles, as they wrote in the New Testament letters and and the Gospels, when they said anointed, they chose that word, the Greek word Christos, anointed one. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach. But it goes even further than this. And I want you to track very carefully here because you could miss what I'm saying and go down a bad direction. (laughs) So listen. Mashiach. Hebrew, anointed one. Christos, Greek, anointed one. And recently we read where John wrote in 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. And it's the word chrisma. Same root as Christos. Christ. Anointing. Gift. Sometimes it's translated gift. Sometimes it's translated spirituals. You have an anointing. You have a, a chrisma which is where we get the same word, Christos, Christ, anointed one, anointing. It's all very closely connected. The Greek word, by the way, is chrisma. Back to the Hebrew word, mashat, you have an anointing. If we were speaking Hebrew right now and we were talking about our anointing from the Lord, we'd be talking about our mashat. And the anointed one, again, is mashiach. And what we need to understand, what I'm pointing at here in, in the connection of these words is that the very source of true anointing, the source of our spiritual gifts, is the Lord. The spiritual gift, the chrisma that is given to me, comes from the Christos, which is Jesus. Now you might say, well Rick, yeah, duh, no kidding. No, don't, don't let this go too quickly. It's simple, but it's incredibly important to understand. We were in our meeting last night, and we were talking about this very thing. And um, hadn't planned to do this, but we showed up at, at Jim's house, and Jim had been praying about this and, and kind of waiting for the right time. And he said, I, I believe the Lord wants me to anoint each of you with oil and to pray for you. And we're like, cool. So we lined up. <laughs> and we just gathered around and, and Jim did that and prayed for each one of us. And specifically, Jim was praying for the Lord to give his anointing to each man, to each shepherd, that he would give the gifts that we had, had yet to receive. And it was a precious time. 
And then we went into the living room, we sat down, and Russ and Tom, I'm not going to take you back through the whole evening, but we sat down and, and started talking about this, this anointing, spiritual gifts. And we went to several places, and you may want to jot these down, because I, I'm not going to have time to read them to you right now, but, but jot them down and go back and look at them. If you want to know where to find the listings of the spiritual gifts, those things, those, those spiritual anointings that the Lord gives you, here are the places to find them in the New Testament. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 11, and verses 27 and 28. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11, 27 and 28. And you will see literally a list. Paul lists several of the spiritual gifts. He'll do the same thing over in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11 and 27 and 28. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. All those gifts in those two passages of Scripture you could call the shared gifts or the common gifts. Not because they're common. Because many of these gifts are very powerful. In fact, I, I think some of the most powerful gifts are the ones that we completely overlook, like the gift of helps or the gift of administrations. These are very powerful gifts. A lot of times people will jump right to healings, miracles, and tongues. Well, those are powerful too. But a whole lot more tends to get done in the kingdom with the gift of administrations than with the gift of tongues. So these are powerful gifts. They're not common in that they're lower class. They're common in that they are poured out on the church. The shared gifts. For the body. For anyone in the body. But Paul also lists a different kind of gifts. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, he lists five more gifts and we can call them the shepherding gifts. These are specifically, biblically speaking, the gifts that are given to the church in the form of the leadership of churches. And as I share that, please understand, when we talk about leadership in the church, it's not like leadership in the business world. Leadership in the church is heading down the ladder, not up. Leadership in the church is serving, not being served. And so these gifts are given to servants in the church, leaders in the church, shepherds, we call them the shepherding gifts, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. But here's what I want you to hear. Paul says this about the source of the gifts in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, To each one of us grace was given, according to the measure of each of our abilities. It doesn't say that. It says, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And please understand, the spiritual gifts are that. They're gifts. They are not abilities. They're not achievements. And they are not earned. They're gifts that are given. So whatever spiritual gift you have does not make you better than anybody else because all the spiritual gifts are given. And because one person has the ability to heal... Well, I have the gift of healing. I can, I can lay my hands on someone, pray for them, and I have seen miraculous healing. Wonderful. That doesn't make you better than the person who has the gift of helps, which is a lot less flashy, but very important in the body. They're all gifts. And they're all given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now listen, it says this expression, he ascended. Paul says, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Does that make sense? You can't say that Jesus ascended if he hadn't descended first, right? 
He can't go up if he hasn't come down. If he was up all the time and he'd never come down, he couldn't go up and he's already there. So Paul's saying he came down and then he ascended and he says, He who descended is himself also who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. When you talk about spiritual gifts and the fact that the gifts are the chrisma and that Jesus is the Christ, the line that, I, that we got to not cross here, that we have to be careful of, is in the New Age Eastern mysticism, in the New Age movement, people say you can be Christ. That each one of you can be Christ in and of yourself, Christ incarnate. That we can all walk around as, as Christ, as the, as the Christ figure. And we can become perfect like Christ did. In fact, Christ really wasn't God. He was just a man who really achieved that perfection. And you can too. That's New Age theology. And it is completely heretical. Because you will never be as great as Christ. Ever. There is only one Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There's only one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. However, though there is only one Christ and you will never be like Him or never be Him, you can be like Him. In fact, we are called to be like Jesus, to be like Christ. We are given the gifts, the Christmas, so that we can be like the Christos. John writes, Beloved, we are now children of God. 1 John 3.2 And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And so go back to what Hannah prayed. She says He will exalt the horn of His anointed. He will exalt the strength of His anointed. Yes, she's talking about possibly the anointed one, the coming Messiah. She may also be talking about Samuel who is anointed to carry out the work of the Lord. She may be talking about the kings who are anointed. She could very well be talking about you and me, those who are anointed. He gives us strength. He empowers us. It is from Him that this comes. And for all of our earthiness, we are called to be strengthened, even gifted by the Lord, but those gifts are to the praise of His glory. So never forget that. When we talk about spiritual gifts and and pray about the gifts and ask for the gifts to be given, never forget the source of the gifts. Because the gifts are given not to make us look good, but to bring glory right back to the source, who is Jesus Christ. Let's go on. In verse 11 it says, Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And we talked about this phrase on Sunday, that Samuel ministered to the Lord as opposed to for the Lord. Samuel was too young at this point to minister for the Lord. In fact, technically he wasn't even a Levite. He was an Ephraimite. So he wasn't in the line of the priest to be ministering for the Lord. And when when Hannah dropped him off for the first time, remember, he was just weaned, so four or five years old. (laughs) We have, right now, the Campbell kids are staying at our house until Sunday. Andrew and Becky Campbell are out of town, and and all three of them are. And all three are, I'm not even sure how old Kelvin is, the oldest, eight or nine, and then then down from there. So they've been at the house today. And, and I was thinking about Samuel at four or five years old in the temple, and I was thinking, what if it was little Tim? That'd be about right. Tim or maybe Sky in the temple. Amazing that the boy ministered to the Lord. He may have been five years old. And some of you have seen that in children, this ability to just believe and love the Lord, and we know that the Lord is pleased by kids. 
They minister to him in a way that, that we adults forget how to, just in being themselves, in being real. I, I can't even tell you how many times we had to tell those three boys today to turn the volume down just a couple of notches. It's hysterical to listen to the way these guys play. And I've forgotten because our, our youngest is ten. And we've got two teenagers. And they close their doors. And so we don't hear a lot. We hear rumblings. We don't hear a lot. But these three boys are downstairs. And everything they said was yelling. And it wasn't angry. Turn the TV on. I want to watch the TV. Hey, let's play with the Legos. Hey, these are great. Hey, you want to run over here? Let's run over here. Okay. Okay, guys, 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 guys. Yeah, yeah. Parents are having a break and we're being broken. So we're there saying, guys. And I say, okay. Just take it down a notch. Okay, okay, okay. I'm not even halfway up the stairs. Wow, well, let's get out of the Lego. This is terrific. Hey, Tim, come over here. Yes, guys, see what you're saying. It's just, ah. And I went up to my office and I could hear them through the walls and they're yelling and everything and I just started laughing. And I thought, you know, God just, he, no wonder he loves kids because they're so funny. No wonder he loves us because we are so funny. We yell and get all into it. But here's little Samuel, and he's ministering to the Lord, and I remind you it is the highest of callings. Higher than ministry for the Lord. And don't miss that in your spiritual lives. As we walk in the Lord and get close to Him, don't forget, don't, don't give away ministry to the Lord in favor of ministry for the Lord. Don't get so busy doing for God that you forget to minister to Him in praise, in prayer, in time spent alone. If you're driving in the car somewhere, turn the radio off. If you're home, turn the TV off. Spend a few moments just with God, not even for your sake. Have you ever thought about just praying for God's sake? Have you ever thought, I'm going to stop and talk to the Lord just for Him? That's a weird thought because typically our prayers are for us. So God wants us to bring it to Him. Ministry to the Lord. And by the way, as we said on Sunday, it's one of the best ways to learn to hear from the Lord when you are in ministry to the Lord. You will hear a lot better even than when you're doing ministry for the Lord. Acts chapter 13 verse 2 tells us, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That would be ministry for the Lord. I love that phrase. While they were ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit said... When did the Spirit talk to them? When they were ministering to the Lord. And then He told them how to minister for Him. And so they could go about the business of the Lord the right way because it's what He wanted them to do. So young Samuel is there at Shiloh. He's ministering to the Lord. By contrast, now we get to meet the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. I can't read that word worthless, by the way. My, my dad had, a, had an uncle whose name was Worth, and they called him worthless. <laughs> now, the sons of Eli were worthless men, but this phrase worthless, by the way, some of your Bibles may say this, it's not literally worthless. It is literally the sons of Belial, sons of Satan. That's how bad. They weren't just worthless. They were evil. You will see how evil they really were. Verse 13 says, The custom of the priests with the people... Uh, well, they did not know them. They did not know the Lord. They did not know the custom of the priests with the people, even though they were priests. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. It was a little game they played. 
Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, also before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. Give him the good stuff is what he's saying. And if the man said to him, Well, they must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. And thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now you can read that and go, Okay, fork in a pot, taking the meat before the burning fat. Who cares? What's the big deal here? Turn back to Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7 and verse 30 we are given a clear picture and understanding of exactly what's being talked about here Leviticus 7.30 talking about the offerings to the Lord and it says that the priest is to his own hands are to bring offerings by fire to the Lord he shall bring the fat with the breast that the breast may be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. They literally would wave it. That's what's called a wave offering. And the priest shall offer up the fat and smoke on the altar. But the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. And what's interesting about this, we talked about this way back when we were in Leviticus, is God said, I will take the fat. Now we understand something about cholesterol now that they did not understand then. In fact, even 30, 40 years ago, we didn't understand cholesterol like we did now. And people would dig into a prime rib. And man, you know, marbled meat, that fatty meat, oh, that's good stuff. And even now, it, it pains me to cut the fat off of the meat. I do it because I realize it's just nasty and gross going into my body. But it's good. It's good. Greasy, drippy, fatty steak. Oh, I mean, it tastes great. And again, it kind of grosses us out now because we know it goes straight to our heart and just kind of clogs on in there. They didn't know it then. And so the inclination of the people would be, I want to eat the fat. Give me the fat. Yeah, that's, that's the tasty part of the meat. And God said, no, I will take the fat. Which is interesting because he does the same thing in our lives. He takes what's harmful for us on himself. He takes our very sin, the fat of our lives, our sin to the cross. And he leaves us only the meat of the word the protein that which we need to grow strong and so this is the way it worked they, they would bring this offering and all the, the fat portions would be cut off offered up in smoke to the Lord first and then the breast that was left over that was waved before the Lord then that went to the priest he got the meat it was an offering to the priest himself he got to take home the breast meat and he got to eat it and it says in verse 32 you shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifices of your peace offerings the one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat the right thigh shall be his and as his portion for I have taken the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the contribution from the sons of Israel for the sacrifices of their peace offerings and I the Lord is speaking I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as their due forever from the sons of Israel now go back to second the first Samuel chapter 2 what's happening here is Hophni and Phinehas are taking what they would get anyway but they're greedy they want it now they want it by force they want it their way the two problems that are, that are happening here is number one they're pulling out more meat than they were supposed to and that's the idea with the fork going into the pot the meat was brought and it was being boiled as preparation for sacrifice and this little game that they would play is take this three-pronged fork they'd stick it down in there whatever came out oh look at that <laughs> that's ours thank you 
little extra contribution as if it wasn't enough to get the pie and the breast they wanted to get stuff out of the pot as well and that offended the Lord and then Eli's sons priests or Eli's um, sons they also took their meat before the Lord was given his portion God took the fat and gave them the meat and all he asked was give me mine first give me the first portion why would God do that? Because he is trying to get the Israelites, and I think by extension you and me, he's trying to get us used to going to him first. This idea, by the way, stands out to me. Idea of offering to the Lord, and these priests are granted part of the offering, but after it had been given to the Lord, and this is the way it works with us, gang. I'm going to speak very bluntly and clearly about this. Every dollar you have in your pocket is the Lord's. Everything you own belongs to Him. And He says, guess what? I'm going to give you 90% of it. Minimum, I'm going to give you 90%. But I want you to give me 10%. I want you, you to give me the first fruits. Now, I've actually been accused of being a little legalistic about tithing. But listen to me on this, because I see an interesting and clear parallel here. And I'm not legalistic about tithing. By the way, if I was, I'd be checking everybody's tithing records and giving you calls if you weren't tithing. We don't do, I have no idea. In fact, I like not having any idea what anybody else gives because then I can preach it. And we can just say, what does the Bible say? God says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, bring the whole tithe. Tithe, there is no bones about it. Tithe means 10%. That's what it means. I didn't make up the word. I didn't choose the word. But when the prophet Malachi is speaking by the Lord, the Lord says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this. The only time in scripture God says, test me. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. That's the deal. You bring the first 10% and I am going to bless your socks off. Sound like a good deal? It does to me. And then he says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, not only am I going to bless you, but I'm going to protect your income. I'm going to protect it. I'm going to make sure it continues to come and you're going to have everything that you need. I will do this if you'll bring the first 10%. So you're saying like we pay God and then he, and then, then he takes care of us? No. God has this whole idea of giving set up for this reason that we would learn to trust Him. And once we have learned to trust Him that we will exult in His generosity. That we will have joy in our giving. Giving is not supposed to be a sorrowful thing. Remember how Paul talks about being a cheerful giver? The word cheerful is, is hilarion where we get our word hilarious. He is so specific about this. And, and you know what? You all can choose to do with it as you please. In fact, in the New Testament, there isn't the same legalistic requirement. This was a requirement for Israel. Bring the tithe. This was law in Israel. For us, it's not law. For us, it's privilege. We can't. We get to. Now, well, that just doesn't work out on paper for me, Rick. It never will. It never will. Tithing does not work out on paper. It will not fit your budget. It will not make sense. I'm guaranteeing you. And if you try to make it fit your budget to be a tither, it's not going to work. It just doesn't. God doesn't want it to. He wants you to look at your budget and go, no way. Here you go, Lord. And then see how He makes a way. And it's so fun. 
And it really replaces the stress of finances with the joy of the Lord. You might say, well, that Malachi thing, it is. It's Old Testament law, but the principle is still here today, and this is it. Please hear this. This is the main principle I want you to get. Tithing invites graciousness. Tithing invites graciousness. And what I mean by that is I'm not just talking tithing, I'm talking about first fruiting. I'm not talking about waiting until everything's paid and then seeing if you have enough left over to give the Lord. I'm saying you give the Lord first and then do with what you got left. When the paycheck comes, whatever you have determined to give to the Lord, you give it first. You write that check before any other and you give that to the Lord. And then you look at what's left. And if what's left is not enough, you leave it to the Lord. And watch how He blesses you. And I'm a firm believer that He will bless you. Give the Lord what He asks for first and your blessing will overflow. Tithing invites graciousness. Not our graciousness. Tithing invites the graciousness of the Lord. Giving our first fruits to the Lord invites Him then to be gracious to us. Gives Him opportunity to bless us. Instead of us hoarding it and figuring out and, and working the ledger, it gives God opportunity to say, okay, now watch what I'm going to do. Watch how I'm going to take care of your needs. And when He does, you know it's Him and not you. Paul does say, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Hophni and Phineas, the problem wasn't they weren't getting enough from the Lord. The problem was they wanted it first. And they wanted it their way. And they didn't want to trust the Lord for it. So they sent their servants to stick the fork in and pull out ahead of time and get a little extra because, man, they had to cover their backs. They had to make sure their needs were covered. They had to provide for their families somehow, right? And God's saying, that is offensive to me. Why not trust me first? I'm going to, take, I'm going to give you the breast and the thigh. You're going to get that. I will meet your needs. Trust me first, but Hophni and Phineas, these evil dudes, did not. And by the way, notice that Hophni and Phineas were the environment in which Samuel grew up. Not at home with Hannah, our prayer warrior, our faithful woman. Not there with Eltana, who went down every year to Shiloh to worship God. Not in a house where I would think would be the best place for Samuel to grow up. No, he grows up at the tabernacle under the oversight of Eli, the father of Hophni and Phinehas, the father who's done a lousy job raising these two boys who are so darn evil. Verse 18 says, Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it up to him year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went home to their own home. They went to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. As we said before, six kids all in all. But watch this. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Now again, I would think it would be better for the boy Samuel to grow in the house of Elkanah and Hannah, not with the influence of Hophni and Phinehas. And it's tragic to say that sometimes, even in the church, the evil can be strong. 
sometimes in the church is not where you want the influence to be as some of you have experienced and sometimes that's why people leave churches because they begin to recognize God is not here man is here kind of like Bambi's mother saying man is in the forest (laughs) these things just get in from my childhood (laughs) but Samuel grows up there in full view of Hophni and Phinehas in full view of their sin their wickedness their evil and yet still still the boy Samuel grew before the Lord and it reminds me of another boy who grew up before the Lord Luke 2.40 tells us the child continued to grow and become strong increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him we're talking about of course Jesus Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53.2 that he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground that phrase is so important a root out of parched ground that's the world into which Jesus was born parched ground Not thriving, green, lush vegetation, but parched ground. When Jesus came into the world, it was spiritually dry, but Jesus grew up before the Lord. And the times were not good. It had been 400 years since since a prophet had come. And so the boy Jesus grew up in a parched, dry place, just like Samuel, growing growing up in a place that is not spiritual. But this tender shoot, Jesus Christ, grew up out of parched ground. In the same way the boy Samuel grew before the Lord, he ministers to the Lord even when others in the temple are involved in sin. And it's interesting, Samuel didn't quit the church just because sin was going on there. He didn't walk away and say, I've had it because of what some other man or some other leader was doing. Samuel grew before the Lord. And that's a great principle If you've ever been disappointed by the actions of Christians, if you've ever been hurt by the church, the key to not becoming discouraged is grow before the Lord. He's the one you're growing up for. Not anybody else in the fellowship. Not anybody else in any other church. You are not growing before man. You are growing before the Lord. And as Paul wrote in Galatians 1.10, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Therefore, man-pleasing doesn't cut it. Only God-pleasing. Grow up before the Lord. And let all the hurt and the difficulties and the bad examples that you see in the church and among other Christians, let that fall away because it's not the point. We're all sinners in a sinful place. You've probably heard that the church is more akin to a hospital, a hospital than it is to a, a temple. People are hurt and sick and dying and need healing. But grow up before the Lord. Verse 22, now Eli was very old. At this point you'll find out later he's in his upper 90s. And he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Watch this, how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. It's not just the sacrifice thing that's the problem with Hophni and Phinehas. These guys, these guys are carnal. How they're laying with the women... There at the, at the door of the tent of, of meeting, what, what this is, is saying, there are two, school, two schools of thought on this phrase, lay with the women. One school of thought is they use their priestly position, and as women came up to the tabernacle to worship, they would rape them. They would, in their position as priests, force themselves upon these women. See, it didn't just start with the priest scandals in the Catholic Church. It didn't just begin back in the, in the 80s with the televangelist scandals or any of that. This, this has been going on since day one. Men using position of prominence 
to force women or others into compromising positions. This is what I would call religious rape. These guys, Hophni and Phineas, great guys, aren't they? And the other school of thought, just as bad, is that they introduced the pagan concept of temple prostitution to Israel at this point. And they were inviting women to come up and be tabernacle prostitutes. Can you imagine how the Lord must have felt about that? As these two boys were doing this, they're in full view at the door of the temple, taking a woman off to their tent with everybody watching, everybody knowing what was going on. Unbelievable. These guys were carnal. They were corrupt. Verse 23. So Eli said to them, Why do you do such things? The evil things that I heard, that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord, listen to this, the Lord desired to put them to death. Their ears were closed. God hardened their hearts. And we've seen this happen before. We saw it happen with Pharaoh. We've seen it happen with others where the Lord determines to harden a person's heart so that they can't repent. Eli calls out to his boys, stop what you're doing. They can't even hear because God said, I'm not going to let them hear you because I am going to put them to death. And that kind of sounds harsh. And that kind of sounds like the kind of God that we hear people say there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God and the Old Testament God did those things. But the New Testament God doesn't do those things. No, same God. But I want you to understand this whole idea of a violation of free will. This is not a violation of free will on God's part. It is a confirmation of their choice. This is what God's doing. Hophni and Phinehas are hard-hearted, carnal creatures. And God is honoring their decision. This is the life you want to live. Okay, this is what you're going to face. The Lord will do it again. In fact, it's going to be this way in the end. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 A difficult verse says They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved and for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Hophni and Phinehas had reached the point of no return and I've shared before I believe there is a point of no return in our sin choices. There is a place that you cannot come back from where you have sinned so far down the line that your heart is so hard you will not repent. Not because God wouldn't forgive you, but because your sin has taken you too far. And God alone knows where that point is. Hophni and Phinehas were easily there. They had reached the point of no return. Their rebellion was so intense and so deep, there was no turning back. And so God closed their ears. He honored their decision to be where they were. He wants all people to come to repentance, but he will honor the choices people make. Verse 26 says, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with men. Once again, the similarity to Jesus is remarkable. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Almost the exact same phrase. Applied to Samuel, applied to Jesus. Samuel is like Jesus. He's not Jesus. He's not Christos. But he has Christmas. He is like Jesus. He is a picture of Jesus. And verse 27 says, then, then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in bondage to Pharaoh's house? 
And did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my, in my dwelling? And honor your sons above me. This is Eli's problem. You have honored your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choices of every offering of my people Israel. And what we see here is that Eli is complicit in his son's behavior. Eli's involved. He may not be sending his servant to poke in the fork and to take the stuff ahead of time, but he's eating it. He's taking it in. He's allowing his sons to take it in. And so God sends this other prophet. He's unnamed. One of many times this happens in Scripture. A man of God, a prophet, comes to Eli. God sends a messenger and tells Eli this. Now this is before what we studied on Sunday where God will come to Samuel as a boy and give Samuel the same message and say, tell this to Eli. This is a different prophet. But the problem Eli had here is five words. Honor your sons above me. You honor your sons above me. He's not just an unfortunate dad. He is complicit in their sin. Verse 30 says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. It's a powerful verse. This unnamed prophet comes in the name of the Lord, and he says, You are given a great privilege. You are given the privilege of ministering to me. And instead, you decided to minister for yourself. You blew the privilege. Eli's problem was that he honored his sons above God. Rather than pointing them to the Lord, Eli's been placating his sons. And moms and dads, listen to me on this. If we try to make our children like us, we won't like how they turn out. If we're concerned with being their friend or their buddy or their pal, not a good thing. We're just trying to ease them through life and, and placate their decisions. Oh, you probably shouldn't have done that. It's okay, it's okay. I don't want you to be mad at me. Let them be mad at you. One of the best things you can do as a parent is be a jerk to your kid. (laughs) In their eyes. First day of school, we had a standard. No computers until homework is done. Unless you're doing homework on the computer, that's a different thing. But no computers, no playing games, no emailing, no instant messaging, none of that stuff until homework is done. And I go downstairs, and my Hannah was on the computer, talking to her friends. I said, Hannah, I said, we had a rule. I mean, it's the first day of school. She didn't even wait a week. First day, and we had a rule. Yeah, but Dad, all I have to do is read. Is it homework? Yeah, but Dad, all I had to do is read. Is it homework? Dad, all I had to do is read. Is it homework? I mean, back and forth. And she went, okay, click, turn it off, stomped in her room, closed the door. And I went upstairs, about halfway up the stairs, I went, why? If that had been me, and I was my dad, if my dad had come down and done that to me, I would have thought, what a jerk. And I smiled and went, all right. (laughs) So I'm a jerk. For the teenagers, and I'm thinking about Taylor and Caitlin here going, I can't believe you did that to Hannah. How mean. What a jerk. Yeah, I know. I know. But I'll tell you to something. You set the standard now. Here's the discipline now. And later it's not a problem. And I would rather be a jerk from time to time and see my kids lost. And this is what we see with Samuel. His kids are going to be lost for all eternity because he didn't want to be a stand-up father. 
We just want to kind of roll with it and let it go on by. The parent's primary purpose is that the son and daughter know Jesus Christ, whatever it takes. That's first and foremost. So this is where Eli blew it big time, by example and by passivity. Well, verse 31, going on. Behold, the days are coming. The Lord is now still declaring through the prophet, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that they will not be an old man in your house. Verse 32, you will see the distress of my dwelling. In spite of all the good that I do for Israel, an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In other words, the prophet's now saying, here's how you're going to know this is from the Lord. This will be the sign. On the same day, both of them will die. We're going to see that happen. Not tonight, but we're going to see it happen. Both Hophni and Phinehas taken out. Same day, same instant. But, watch this, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please, assign to me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread Verse 35 again. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul and I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed, my Mashiach, always. Always. Who is this this faithful priest? Some say it could be Samuel. I will raise up a faithful priest who will go before me, who will go before my anointed. Samuel is a prophet, but he also anoints. He is an anointer. He serves as a priest to the people. And he does minister before God's anointed king, Saul, and then later David. So it might be Samuel is being referred to here. It could also be Zadok. Zadok. This verse is alluded to later on. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27 says that Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. You see, Abiathar was the last one in the household of Eli. Last in the line. Solomon dismisses him. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord, which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh, and then 1 Kings 2.35 says the king appointed Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. Now you may remember we talked about the sons of Zadok, or the sons of Zadok, on Sunday. And Ezekiel 44 tells us that the sons of Zadok are, are apportioned a high honor because they were the sons who ministered to the Lord while the rest of the priesthood was ministering for the Lord. So it could be Samuel being referred to here. It could be Zadok or Zadok. But both, as we have already seen with Samuel, both are types of our great high priest, Jesus. Both are types of the anointed one. And this is the one about whom I believe he's really speaking, and that is Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Don't you want to be like Jesus? One of the things that impresses me most about Samuel is how many allusions there are to Jesus. You look at Samuel, who grew up in wisdom and stature before men and before God, just like Jesus. A man who grew before the Lord, just like Jesus. One who was anointed and an anointer of others, just like Jesus. 
I can't think of a better thing than to be called Christian, than to be seen as one of His. I, I love the verse about Peter and John, where it tells us the Sanhedrin were gathered and they had pulled them up in front of them, and Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says, As they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. That is so cool that someone could recognize me as having been with Jesus. That someone could recognize you as being one of those Christians. Oh, you're one of those Jesus people, right? You are, I can tell. Yeah, I am. Thanks for noticing. People who have been with Jesus. Samuel and Zadok and Peter and John, they walked as those who ministered to the Lord, who were seen as those who have been with Him. It was unmistakable. And remember what Hannah prayed back, back in verse 10, that He will exalt the strength of His anointing. Of those who walk in the anointing of Jesus Christ, He will lift you up. He will exalt. He will give you your strength. He will make you not Jesus, but like Jesus. Which I believe should be the greatest desire of any Christian's heart. Well, looking at chapter 3, we studied it in depth on Sunday. We went into all of it. We're not going to go back over it again. But for one section, look at the last three verses of chapter 3. As we looked through it on Sunday, we talked about how Samuel, young Samuel, heard the voice of God in the middle of the night, what that was like, and, and how we can hear God. How Samuel was called four times. And finally, in the fourth time, we're told that, that God came, that the Lord came and stood and called him, was present there, at, actually there, at the bedside, in person. And I believe it's one of those theophanies, or Christophanies, a picture of Jesus. Jesus showing up in the Old Testament scriptures in that scene. And then verse 19 tells us that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fail. Literally, let none of his words fall to the ground. That is, that's a verse to memorize. Let none of his words fall to the ground. Not one. Don't miss a word of God. Don't miss a single thing that he has to say to you. Or that he has for you in the word. Let none of his words fall to the ground. Verse 20, all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And we understand this, that God speaks to us by his word. That he teaches us through his word. That he enlightens us by the word of the Lord. And James wrote in James 1.21, In humility receive the word implanted. Now one last thing I want to share with you and we're done tonight. I had a conversation earlier this week about some Hebrew words. And we even did some talking early on about Mashiach and Mashach and Christos and Christman and the different words and how they, they react and interact together. And in this conversation I was having... This, this sister was, was talking about how she was just going back and forth and, and, and following this, this, doing this word search and how exciting it was looking at Hannah's name and, and how even in Hannah's name you get pictures of Samuel. It's just mind-boggling when you trace the origin of these words and how wonderful all of that is. And it is truly fascinating to do word studies in the Bible. You all know I love it. You hear it all the time. Well, the Hebrew word for this is halaha. And you hear that. And hey, Rick's going off on words again. But I want to caution you because something, I got a red flag, a little check in my spirit this week as I was thinking about this. Don't get so caught up in the words that you miss the word. The word is Jesus. 
The words are wonderful. And it is no surprise that a God-breathed book would even have individual words that are just mind-boggling in how they fit together. This is a book of divine origin. But don't get so caught up in the book that you miss the author. In the words written that you miss the word incarnate. Study tip for you. Always, always, always look for Jesus in the word. No matter where you are. Old Testament or New, book of prophets, book of history, book of psalms, no matter where you are, look for Jesus in the Word. Look for Jesus to be expressed, for we have seen the Word always points us to Jesus, always shows us hints of His character, always indicates the glory of Jesus. Psalm 40, verse 7, and Hebrews 10, verse 7, same verse, one quoting the other, says, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. And so chapter 3 ends with these words. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. What does that mean? The word of the Lord is the word in flesh. He revealed himself through Jesus. Back in verse 10, and we talked about this Sunday, the Lord came and stood and called us at other times, Samuel, Samuel. The Lord stood. He was present. He was there. How? In the form of the Word. And who is the Word? The Word made flesh is Jesus Christ. The Word always reveals and points us to the true Word who is Jesus. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, like Samuel, like this unnamed prophet, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. His Son who is the Word. So for all the excitement of Bible study and word searches, don't ever miss the Word, Jesus. Let's pray to Him now. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We're impressed by it and amazed at just how intricate it truly is. We're blown away by the divinity within the pages of Scripture. Father, my brothers and sisters and I, we, we show up here because we just get excited about these things. And we, we've been a little ignited, Father, and impassioned to, to know more of your word and to, to, to feed on it and, and to be filled by it. We come hungry, we leave filled because your word is so amazing. And Father, we recognize that for all the wonder of your word, that the true wonder is Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we bow before you in humility and in awe and the utmost of honor and respect because of who you are. Because you, the great creator, would become lowly human, would be brutalized and beaten and killed on the cross, only to resurrect again and become our great king. And we so look forward to your coming. And we praise your name, the name of Jesus Christ, above all names. And it's in Jesus' name we pray tonight. Amen.